welcome to Young Smart Money, show number four, with me, your host, Apple Kreider, the show that sets you up for lifelong financial success with personal stories and actionable advice that we certainly didn't learn in school. So when it comes to having more money, at its most basic, you really have two options. Option one is to make more money. This can be done in a variety of ways, like we talked about in episode number three, from asking for a raise at your job, to starting a small business, to taking on a side hustle, or maybe just selling your information through smartphone apps. Option number two to fulfill the goal of having more money is to spend less. Now, most people tend to head over to option number one, thinking that if they make more money, they will get rich faster and accumulate massive amounts of wealth. But in my opinion, and in the experiences of those around me, this really isn't the case. So in this episode, we're going to dive deeper on why that is and discuss some actionable steps that you can take to reduce the amount you spend as a student without actually reducing your quality of life. But first, we're going to hear a quick message from our sponsors. This episode of Young Smart Money is sponsored by $100 and a Smartphone, a free online course that I created to walk college students step-by-step through investing their first $100 in order to create passive income. Have you ever thought, hey, I want more money, but I don't want to have to work more hours to get it? Well, these 45 minutes of video lecture content within $100 and a smartphone will answer all of the most common questions I am asked about starting to invest, such as what is a stockbroker? And how do I find an investment that best balances my risk tolerance and desired rate of return? After completing this course, you will have the skills and confidence necessary to embark on a lifetime of investing to ensure that your money is working for you and you are not working for it. For more information, head over to applecrater.com forward slash course. All right, got to give a quick thanks to our sponsors for making this show possible. Now let's talk saving money in college. So the big points we're going to hit on in this episode today are why saving is actually important in college, the impact that saving can really have throughout the course of your entire life, and how to actually do it. So how can you implement some actionable steps into saving money in college? We're going to give you some tips, some strategies, all of which is going to help you save a ton of money throughout the course of your college career. So first off, let's answer the question, of why is saving important in the first place? Why can't you just make more money? Well, let's say that you find yourself with an additional $1,000 in your bank account. There's a very different thought process that takes place depending on whether that money came from making more or spending less. When you make more money, you tend to want to reward yourself for this accomplishment. This usually comes in the form of increased spending so that at the end of the day, your bank account returns to where it started and you fall back in with the 78% of U.S. workers living paycheck to paycheck. And even if you don't spend it all, chances are that you're going to begin to develop habits that will cause you to spend more so that at the end of the day, that $1,000 that you made now looks more like five or $600. And this is the process of lifestyle inflation, and it's really one of the dominant reasons why over three quarters of the U.S. population is living in a cycle of receiving money, paying it all out to the bank for their mortgage, the car dealership for their car loan, Best Buy for the installment plan on their new TV, and to Verizon for their cell phone bill, waiting for one small unaccounted expense maybe a car repair or a sick pet to send them into a cycle of payday loans and credit card debt. But I'll get off my soapbox now um, and just say that making more money doesn't work because it leads to spending more money. But there's another reason why making more money is not going to provide us with greater wealth. And that is because making more money enables us to enter into the trap of keeping up with the Joneses. In essence, this means that we are constantly comparing ourselves and what we have to what we see other people around us 
doing, and having. Now, through social media, TV shows, and just casual conversations with our peers, we get these ideas into our head about what success actually looks like, and then we're pressured to live up to these ideals in order to feel like we're keeping up with those around us. When we live this way, we're really living in a distorted reality based on buying shinier cars and granite countertops faster than our incomes allow. And for what? Because your coworker Jim's aunt just bought a new McMansion and you don't want to feel like you're getting left behind? I hate to break it to you, but everyone else is enjoying their lives too much to care whether you have the newest iPhone. So for the vast majority of people, that additional boost in income is going to have really short-lived effects and is not going to foster long-term beneficial habits. Instead, it's going to cause you to remain caught up in this trap of spending money just as fast, if not faster, than it comes in. But there is a way to avoid this, and no, it's not by buying my $997 course on effectively managing your money. That was a joke, by the way. I don't have a $997 course. And if I did, I kind of doubt that it would be the best way to establish yourself financially. Not that it wouldn't be valuable, just that if you had really tight finances, developing beneficial habits is definitely going to serve you much better than spending money you don't have on an online course. The solution that's really going to help you is developing those good habits with regard to saving money. Now, as Robert Kiyosaki said in his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which, by the way, really inspired me to start sharing financial resources and financial literacy skills with the people around me. In his book, Kiyosaki states, it's not how much money you make, but how much money you keep. And this is a really, really powerful quote for me because it's so, so true. It's not about how much money you make if you're just spending all that money as fast as it comes in. You could be making $100,000 and spending $100,000 and you're still paycheck to paycheck. It's really all about how effective you are and how successful you are at managing your money rather than the amount of money that's coming in on your paycheck every single month. And for the reasons we just discussed, this quote just rings so true to me. If you don't know how to effectively manage your money and how to actually hold on to it, you're going to find out firsthand that a fool and his money are soon parted. So if making more money alone isn't going to do it for you, is saving money actually going to make you rich? Well, let's look at the impact that saving can actually have on your financial situation. So we're going to keep it real simple and say that you're able to save $5 a day. doesn't seem too bad, right? Like, I bet you could find $5, whether that be foregoing your daily Starbucks or packing a lunch instead of eating out at Chipotle. Just a quick side note, my actual approach to saving is a bit different than this uh, because in my opinion, you can penny pinch as much as you want. And as you're going to see, it really can be significant. But where the real power is, is in hitting the big picture expenses like your housing or your transportation costs, which we're going to get to. But for example's sake, it is a whole lot easier and more relatable to assume $5 a day in savings. But what actually happens when you save $5 a day? Well, you're going to have about $150 a month, you're going to have about $900 in six months, and in a year's time, you'll have just over $1,800. Now, that's all well and good, and I bet you can multiply by fives all by yourself, but what's the point? The point is, when you take a look at where your money is going, you now have control. When you focus on making more money, but once it comes in the door, you have no idea where it went, you don't have control. In order to get a grip on your financial situation, you need to be in control. Not just of where your money comes from, but in control of where it actually goes. Even something as simple as looking for an extra $5 every day can really make you take a look at how you spend your money and get a clearer picture on your financial situation. Once you have that picture to work from, you're going to know where your money's going and at that point, you can concern yourself with increasing your 
income. In essence, control is key. And saving is going to make you take a closer look at your spending and regain that control. But how do you actually do it? Now what we're going to do is break saving down into both specific categories like your food budget, your textbooks, your entertainment. And then we're actually going to look at some big picture stuff as well, like your transportation, your housing, and just stuff in general. So let's start off with food. And within food, there are actually three more categories that we're going to break down. So we're going to start off with groceries. So when it comes to groceries, my number one tip is to eat ramen. Only ramen, three times a day, every day, and your food costs are going to drop immediately. Wait, that's not my tip? Oh, that's actually just a really bad idea? No, there's not anyone else in the studio and I'm just talking to myself? Perfect. Well, in reality, eating ramen might save you money in the short term, but you're likely going to feel like crap. And what is the fun in that? So the first thing you're going to want to do to save money on groceries as a student is to buy in bulk. You know that wall of the grocery store with the plastic bags that you fill yourself? That is where the deals are. When you stop paying for packaging, you start saving money immediately. Anything non-perishable, think nuts, oats, rice, can and should be bought in bulk. Next, there are a ton of apps designed to save college students money on their grocery bill. My two favorite are going to be Mucho and Grocery Pal. All right, so with Mucho, I'm a bit biased. If you listen to episode number three, you'll know I used to work for them. But they are a really, really valuable app that really, I was using them before I worked for them, and I still use them even after I worked with them. But they really do provide a ton of value for the college student who is buying their groceries. So essentially how the app works is you get points for spending money, and these points can be redeemed for gift cards to the stores that you shop at. And essentially how the points work out is it's about a 10% return on the spending that you do. So if you spend $100, you'll get about $10 um, for a gift certificate to the grocery store that you shop at. So, I mean, that's a pretty good deal. And if you compound that with any uh, cash back or rewards that you're getting from, say, a credit card, you can really start to see the rewards add up quite quickly. Now, there's also usually a free reward for when you spend $15 at the grocery store. So some of the examples of free stuff that I have gotten for spending $15, I got some free popcorn. I got a free meal kit, which actually cost like $30 by itself, but it came with like fish and sweet potatoes and a bunch of like really nice stuff, which I definitely would not have bought any like fish um, with my own money because like fish is expensive. Um, and then I also got this cookie cake, which was like a shape of a cake, but it was a cookie um, and it was free. So I was like, sure. And all of this was completely free when you spend $15. So I just went to the grocery store, did my weekly grocery shopping, and got a free thing, which was great. And this app is currently available on like two or three dozen college campuses uh, all across the nation. So you should definitely check out if that is something that is available in your area. Additionally, Grocery Pal is another very valuable app for not just college students, but anyone who's looking to save money on their groceries. So essentially how Grocery Pal works is you enter in your list, your grocery list, and it shows you which stores in your area are going to have the cheapest deals for the stuff that you're looking to buy. Now this app can be really advantageous if you're in a place with a ton of options and you don't want to look through each place's Sunday ad to see what is on sale and where. And taking a step back, just having a list in the first place is really, really key when it comes to grocery shopping and if you're looking to save money. Now, if you just walk into a grocery store thinking you need food for the week, you can really end up coming out with a frozen pizza, three bags of munchies, and a fruit. Like, you gotta have a game plan, and your list is really gonna keep you on track and help you get in and out as fast as possible. But how would you even put a grocery list together in the first place? Well, if you want to save money, you build it around the deals. Personally, on Sunday, the grocery store on campus puts out their deals. 
So on Sunday, I scan through there, see what's on sale, and I put my list together based on what I find in that ad. Now, not only has this saved me money, but it has also made me a much better chef. It's really a lot harder to get stuck in the ruts of making the same thing week after week when you're always buying different things. Of course, I do have my staple foods that I buy every week, but building a list based on what is on sale has really benefited me hugely. Additionally, with your list, you should also be keeping meal prepping in mind. Now, if you're a college student that isn't meal prepping yet, I can tell you personally, it will change your life. So meal prepping is essentially the process of making a big batch of one meal, portioning it out, and then storing these individual servings in the fridge or freezer. Now, this is how I'm able to do my cooking for the week on Sunday and then have food ready to go all week. So instead of cooking up one breakfast burrito or one can of soup, you turn the dial up a notch and scramble up a dozen eggs or get a big pot of chili going so that for the entire week, you can have real food ready to go. Now, this will keep you from eating ramen or ordering takeout or just any other and just unnecessary food spending that you don't have to do. And therefore, it's going to save you tons. Lastly, with all of these grocery tips, it really does matter where you shop. And if you're a broke college student, I would really suggest cutting out Whole Foods. If you want to see the greatest savings, it's going to be in your best interest to shop at generic stores and buy generic store brands. When you stop paying for brand names, your wallet is going to thank you. But for those of you that do have some brand loyalty, I say, one, if we're talking processed food, the ingredients are probably the exact same and they were probably made in the same exact factory. And two, if we're talking something that wasn't processed, like nuts or meat, for the most part, an almond is an almond and a chicken thigh is a chicken thigh. So change it up a bit buy the store brand, and start saving yourself some serious money. Now, the next part of food is eating out. And millennials actually spend about $3,000 per year on average on eating out, making up about 44% of their food budget as a whole. Now, this works out to about $58 a week, which for me at least makes up a significant expense. So finding ways to get some of this $58 back is definitely a priority for me. But it's not about being stingy. When it comes to saving money, I'm really all about keeping my quality of life high and not cutting corners that are going to negatively impact my life. Instead, I focus on spending smart and ensuring that I know where I'm spending my money and why. So as far as eating out goes, the first thing that I'm going to say is if you want to save money here, you really got to cut back on the frequency of dining out. That's really just the way it is. But that's not satisfying. Obviously, if you want to spend less on eating out, you should eat out less frequently. I mean, duh. But there are a couple good substitutes to eating out that you can really take advantage of as a student that still include good food, but at a fraction of the cost. Now, the first of which is to cook with friends. So while living in a dorm with a kitchen, I've really realized the extent to which cooking can really serve as a social activity and can be so much fun to cook up a big meal with a couple of friends. Not only is this more fun, but it's actually a lot cheaper, especially when you split the cost of groceries. And if you toss in some board games or a movie, you can really make a whole night out of it. The second substitute to eating out on a college campus is to locate free food. So among my friends, I'm kind of known as the free food hookup. I've always got my eyes to the sidewalk chalk, detailing upcoming free events and asking friends if their student groups are serving up free pizza anytime soon. Because the magnitude of free food on college campuses never ceases to amaze me, and I have absolutely no shame in saying that I have sat through club meetings just for the free food. 
funny story. At the beginning of the year, I actually joined Poultry Club for a day just for free Buffalo Wild Wings. So there's definitely no shortage of free food if you're willing to learn a little bit about the history of the chicken. But when you do eat out, what can you do to minimize the damage that the bill is going to have on your wallet? This is the more interesting question for most people. So let's take a look at that. The first commonly overlooked asset that students have available to them is student discounts. So not just limited to movie theaters, student discounts exist at so many fast food restaurants. And while the benefits are nothing to bring you into the restaurant, if you're there, you might as well be using it. In the show notes, I'm going to provide a link to a website listing some of the most widespread student discounts, but they really do range anywhere from Arby's to Subway to Chipotle to Taco Bell and honestly so many more. So definitely be taking advantage of those when you can because even a free drink or 10% discount really does add up over time. Um, Additionally, on college campuses, there are a ton of apps that either offer discounts to local restaurants or aggregate deals and specials that different places have to offer. Sometimes these apps can even give you completely free stuff. So I've definitely gotten my fair share of free coffee with no purchase required. And essentially, these apps get paid to advertise deals for these restaurants and to get people in the door, hoping that they will not only take the free item, or highly discounted deal, but also spend a bunch on drinks or other high margin items. But if you just take the free stuff, you are good to go. Some examples of the apps are Hooked and Pocket Points. And Hooked is basically just a place where deals are aggregated from a bunch of different restaurants. So like happy hours, um, any like buy one, get one, stuff like that. And Pocket Points is a little bit different. So with Pocket Points, You download this app and it tracks your location when you open the app so it knows when you're in class. And if you keep your phone turned off during class, it rewards you with points that you can use to spend at different local retailers like coffee shops and bakeries to get some free coffee, some free pastries, all of that good stuff. And both of these apps are completely free and they get you free food. So I say, why not check them out? And I'll definitely link those up in the show notes as well over at applecreator.com slash 004. Now, if you want even more free meals, one of the best ways to get them is to become a mystery diner. So a mystery diner is someone who is paid by the owner of a restaurant to come in, order a meal, and observe the wait staff, the quality of service, and the quality of food so that the owner knows whether their restaurant is being run up to their standards or not. And, oh yeah, they also buy you dinner. So, there are websites for most large U.S. cities that aggregate restaurants looking for mystery diners. So, if you Google just mystery diner and then your city, you should be able to get some more info on any programs that are available in your area. Last, you really got to limit your drinks. So I'm not saying stop drinking entirely, just do your drinking at home, because even two drinks out with tax and tip can easily add up to $15. So just save yourself the money, buy yourself a $2 bottle of wine at Trader Joe's or a $10 bottle of Fireball, and do what the kids do these days and pregame. Now that covers groceries and eating out, but there are some food-related purchases that I think can really end up saving you a ton of money throughout the course of not only your college career, but your entire life. So the first of which is a slow cooker. Now a slow cooker will probably run you about $25 and a slow cooker is really so beneficial when it comes to meal prep. So you can really just toss like a bunch of stuff into the slow cooker, make up a big roast or a big pot of chili or really any like big batch item. It's gonna smell good all day and it's so easy to do. So you just throw the stuff in there, and then once it's done, you get home from work or from school or wherever, you take it out, you have your serving, and then you put the rest in Tupperwares, you put those in the freezer or the fridge, and then you've got meals ready for the entire week that you can take with you to class, that you can just heat up really quick. And it's just so convenient to have a slow cooker. I really wish I had one in my dorm room right now. Unfortunately, I do not. 
Next purchase is a French press. So a French press is going to cost you probably about $10 for like your run-of-the-mill French press. And a French press, if you're not familiar, is just a way to make coffee. So you just put the coffee grounds in the bottom, you put some hot water on the top, and then you press it down, and then voila, you've got some coffee. So it's really easy to make coffee with a French press. It doesn't take any electricity. I mean, you've got to heat up water somehow, but you can just use a stove for that. And it's going to pay for itself almost immediately because if you go to Starbucks, it's going to cost you probably around 4 or $5 for a cup of coffee. Whereas with a French press that costs you $10, you can buy um, a bunch of coffee grounds for probably another $5. And then you've got coffee for the month. So $5 a day for coffee versus $15 for a month's worth of coffee. I think the French press does come out on top here. And another bonus of the French press, which I always take advantage of, is when you make up a big batch of coffee, you can drink what you want and then toss the entire French press right in the fridge for tomorrow. So I do that. Some people might be like fridge coffee. That is like taboo, but I'm okay with it. I'm fine with fridge coffee, heated up in the microwave. But that is just me as a college student. Now, the next purchase is Tupperware. So a decent set of Tupperware shouldn't cost you more than $10. And it's going to benefit you so, so greatly in college. I can't tell you how grateful I am that I have a nice set of Tupperware. So when you go to events in college, there's going to be a lot of leftovers. And if you brought Tupperware with you, you can just take those home. So having Tupperware really presents you with a whole new world of free food and they're also really great for meal prep, like we talked about, so that you can just freeze a pre-portioned meal or put it in the fridge so it's ready to go whenever you are ready for it. And that's honestly just going to save you tons throughout college, um, being able to grab that free food from events and be able to meal prep your own food. Now, the last purchase is a water bottle. And honestly, this doesn't even have to be a purchase because a lot of places give out free water bottles. So I'd say a water bottle costs about anywhere from free to like $10. I wouldn't recommend paying $40 for a hydro flask water bottle, but to each their own. And if you're buying plastic water bottles, like the one-time use plastic water bottles, you're really doing it so wrong. Just get a reusable water bottle. Honestly, there are so many groups just handing them out for free, or you can grab one from Target or Amazon for like $10, and it's going to pay for itself within the week and... It's going to encourage you to spend less on sugary non-water drinks as well because you just have this water bottle on you and it is so convenient. Now that we've covered food, we're going to hop over to textbooks. So from 2002 to 2014, the average price of textbooks actually doubled, which just blows my mind. <laughs> So given that today, the average college student is going to spend over $5,000 on textbooks alone throughout their time in college, this is definitely a significant expense. But what can we do to reduce our spend on textbooks? I mean, we can't just stop buying them, or can we? Well, one of the ways that I have found to save the most on textbooks is to not buy them. Now, you can't just say, I'm going to save $5,000 by not buying any textbooks, when you end up failing your classes and have to pay another $25,000 for another year of school. So how do you get away with not buying your books? Well, what I personally do is I don't buy a single textbook until the second week of class at the earliest. By this point, I've had a chance to ask the professor and previous students if the book is actually required for the class and if it warrants a $150 price point or if there's a similar free resource online. Now, so far throughout my college career, I've had multiple professors tell me explicitly that the textbook is not required and it's only listed on the syllabus because the department requires each professor to include at least one required reading. I think this is just ridiculous and you really shouldn't get stuck in the trap of spending $150 on a book that you A, don't need, or B, could find online for free. But if this doesn't work, and it turns out that you will actually be needing the book for the class, then what do you do? 
Well, you'd have a couple of options, none of which include setting foot in the bookstore. The college bookstore is a place to find $30 t-shirts, $20 knickknacks, and severely marked up textbooks that nobody needs to be paying that much money for. When you shop at the bookstore, you're paying a hefty premium for the convenience of buying your books on campus. However, none of the other options for buying your books on a budget involve you setting foot off of campus. Further, there's no reason to buy a college textbook new. I don't know if you bought video games as a kid, but there's this video game store called GameStop that sold new video games for $60 a piece back when I bought them, and they would buy the games back from you when you were done. So to give you a feel for how much money you're going to be getting from the bookstore, when you sell GameStop a $60 video game that you bought about three months ago, they're going to give you about 12 and a half cents. So scale that up a bit, and that's about how buying a new textbook and trying to sell it back at the end of the year is going to go for you. <laughs> this problem really provides us with two valuable insights. The first one is don't buy new books, and the second one is don't buy books, rent them. You're not going to need this textbook after this class, therefore, in my opinion, there's no reason to buy it if you just plan on selling it back eventually anyways. So just rent it and save yourself the trouble of having to sell it back. Personally, I find that Amazon's textbook rental service is a very cost-effective way to get my textbooks, and this semester I rented a used copy of a $250 real estate textbook from Amazon for $39. That is an 85% discount. And they pay for shipping so that at the end of the semester, all I do is I just bring the book to the UPS store on campus and they just send it off for me. But if that doesn't sound like a good option for you, or you don't trust used books for Amazon or whatever, another really cost-effective way to get your textbooks is to utilize social media. So on my college campus, there are a dozen buying and selling Facebook groups and specific Facebook groups dedicated to reselling textbooks. So at the end of the semester, there are so many deals to be had on these Facebook groups because students are just desperate to ditch their books before they go home. So if you know what classes you're taking next semester, definitely, definitely check out these buying and selling Facebook groups or just post a Facebook status with the books that you're looking for to see if your friends can lend a hand. I have not personally bought any books using this method because I prefer to rent my books used from Amazon, but I do have friends who have saved hundreds of dollars just by asking their friends if they know anyone who was previously in this class. All right, so those were our penny-pinching strategies for food and textbooks, but now let's look at the overall big picture. So let's ask ourselves the question, as a college student, what are going to be your biggest expenses? Well, first, you've obviously got housing, so you probably rent a place if you're in college. Maybe you own a place, but rent is going to be one of your biggest expenses. Next is going to be your car or transportation payment. I mean, you got to get around, and if you've got a car, there are going to be some serious expenses associated with that. Next is obviously your school expense. So if you are in college, it's probably not free. Maybe you have scholarships, but for the most of us, it's not free to attend college. So that's going to be a pretty significant expense. And lastly is just stuff. So the stuff you buy, whether that be like a microwave, a mini fridge, or just anything you spend money on, maybe a computer. Um, I think those are the four big categories of where college students actually spend money. So what we're going to do now is look at each of these categories and how to significantly reduce the amount you spend in each of these categories to make the biggest impact on your total spending as a student. So starting off with the biggest one is going to be rent. So with rent, you've really got two options to cut down on this expense or potentially eliminate it entirely. So your first option is to become an RA. So an RA is somebody who lives in the dorms, usually with underclassmen, so the freshmen and maybe the sophomores, and sort of just monitors the floor 
and make sure everybody's in line following all of the housing procedures, all of the policies, basically stuff like that. So just making sure nobody's drinking in the dorms or hotboxing the bathrooms, essentially, is what your job is as an RA. But as an RA, you actually get free housing. So they put you up in the dorms for free. So that's going to completely eliminate your housing expense. You're going to be paying no money at all in rent every single month. So that is huge. Additionally, as an RA, at least at my school, you are given a food stipend. So they give you a certain amount of money that you can spend in the dining halls every single month. So you essentially get your housing and your food for free. Um, so it really doesn't get much better than that. Additionally, you are housed in a good location. So you're housed right in the middle of campus in the dorms. So that's very convenient there. You don't have to worry about commuting to campus. And being an RA actually looks really nice on a resume. So if an employer sees that you are managing God knows how many kids on a floor and keeping them in line and all of that stuff, they are going to know that you are very responsible. You can easily handle um, maybe a management position, managing a team of people underneath you. So it's going to stand out on your resume and employers are really going to like that you were an RA. Lastly, it can be really easy to make connections with other professors and faculty when you're spending so much time on campus. So because you are living on campus and your job is on campus, you're going to be spending a good bit of your time there and it's going to be really easy for you to um, run into professors or faculty, schedule times to meet with them and just build these relationships that might land you some really nice uh, positions throughout the course of your entire life. Now, if you do want to eliminate or severely reduce your housing expense and you're like, there is no way I am going to be an RA. That sounds terrible. I cannot imagine living with a bunch of freshmen and keeping them in line. Then I do have another option for you. And this is the option that I am currently planning on pursuing. And that is house hacking. So if you're not familiar with house hacking, essentially what it is, is it is when you purchase a piece of real estate and a piece of real estate that has more than one unit. So not just a single family home, but maybe a duplex or a triplex or even a fourplex. Because of tax reasons, it doesn't really make sense to go bigger than a fourplex. But you purchase a place with multiple units and then you live in one of them and you rent out the others to ideally cover most, if not all, of your mortgage payment. And if you do this right, you can end up living very, very cheaply, if not completely for free, uh, because the other person or other people are completely paying off your mortgage and you're just able to live in this unit for free and sort of serve as a property manager if anything does go wrong with either your unit or their unit. So this can be a great way to score yourself some free housing without having to live in the dorms. And additionally, you're gonna, you're gonna learn a lot about how to actually make money in the real world and how to actually build wealth through real estate. But that's really not all you're gonna learn. You're gonna learn so, so much from this experience. Um, you might learn that real estate is definitely not for you. You might learn that it's something you're really interested in. You are going to learn how to deal with tenants, whether you like it or not. You're probably not gonna have the best tenants, especially on a college campus. So you're gonna learn how to deal with that and additionally, you're going to learn how to build wealth because, I mean, you can make as much money. Again, coming back to Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, building wealth really comes down to acquiring assets. And a piece of property is definitely an asset, especially when you are renting out the units to other people and receiving those monthly rent checks. Now, it can be pretty tough at a young age to get the money to purchase a uh, piece of real estate. Obviously, that's probably what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, this sounds well and great, but how am I going to put together a um, couple hundred thousand dollars in order to purchase a piece of real estate? Well, it's definitely going to be tough, but it's also definitely not impossible. Um, I can. This episode really isn't the time or place to talk about real estate financing, but... 
that definitely can be something I cover because there are quite a few ways to creatively finance a piece of property as a young person without having to go through the bank who is probably not going to be very willing to work with you because you probably don't have a very long credit history and you probably haven't built up much in the way of a credit score. So these are the two ways that I would say you can really save a ton of money on rent. But now let's move on to transportation and more specifically cars. So when you move out, when you graduate high school, the first thing you might be thinking is, wow, I am ready to buy a car. I've been working some summer jobs and I have some money in my bank account. But my question to you is, do you really need a car? Like, really? And some excuses that I have heard or some some arguments that I've heard for why somebody would have a car at college. The first one is I already have it. The already they, the I already have it approach. So say you got a car maybe as a gift while you were in high school or you saved up and bought one while you were in high school and you already have it. And you figure, well, now that I have this car, I mean, I might as well just bring it along to school because I have it and it'll probably be helpful. Well, my advice to you would be to just honestly leave it at home or better yet sell it because there are so so many costs associated with keeping a vehicle at school and just upkeep and I'll, I'll get into those in a little bit but I think that I already have it approach is definitely completely invalid and you should definitely either keep that car at home or sell it before you leave for school the other thing I hear is people saying that it will be so convenient to have a car um, say they're a graduating high school senior and they think it'll be so, so convenient to just have a car on campus. They'll be able to drive all the way around. They'll be able to give their friends rides. They'll be the talk of the town. And I can tell you personally, as a college student, there has not been one single time where I had the thought that, where I had this thought that it would just be so convenient if I had a car. There was, there's been zero instances where I had wished that I wanted a car. And I mean, to be fair... I am living in an urban campus and I have a bike. Um, but if you're in an urban campus, especially if you have a bike, there's there's absolutely no reason for you to have a car. I mean, it's just completely redundant. And I mean, most schools in cities actually will provide you with a free bus card. So you'll have unlimited bus transportation if you'd rather do that than walk or bike. And in an urban campus, you really just don't want to deal with having a car and just everything that goes along with that giant, giant expense. But if you decide that you do need a car, the next question to ask yourself is, can you really afford that car? And I mean, like, can you really afford it? So when it comes to looking at this question, the mistake that a lot of people make, especially young people, is that they look at the sticker price and not the actual cost, not the total cost of the car, but the sticker price that's advertised at the dealership. And even worse than looking at the sticker price is looking at the convenient monthly payments and figuring that from their income, they're going to be able to afford these monthly payments. So you really do need to look at the total cost, including the dealership fees and all the other costs that are going to go along with buying a vehicle. And the total cost is the cost, including all of the payments with all of the interest and that is going to be the price you pay, not the price you see. So the price you see and the price you pay with a vehicle are two completely different prices, only vaguely related to one another. And you really have to be looking at the price you pay because the price you see can be manipulated to look so much lower than what you're actually going to end up paying. So you do have to keep these two things separate in your mind. Now, if you decided you want to buy a car, and you're looking at a new car. I just have some I have some numbers to tell you really, really quick, just to hopefully get your mind off of the idea of buying a new car, all right? So in the first minute that you have a new car, in the first minute that you drive it off the lot, that car is now worth 89% of what you paid for it. So say you bought a car for $20,000. That car has now lost $2,200 worth of value in a minute. You just basically took $2,200, lit it on fire, and there you went. Drove your car off the lot. Now, fast forward two years down the road. That car is now only worth 69% of what it was when you purchased it only two years ago. 
So coming back to our $20,000 car, that car is now only worth $13,800 two years down the road. So we have lost a significant amount of money now. But if we take this even two more years, so we've had the car for four years, now it is worth 49% of what we paid or just under $10,000. So in four years, we were able to burn $10,000 just on the value of our car, not including any insurance, any gas, any registration, any repairs, any maintenance. We already burned $10,000 and definitely at least $5,000 more on all of those other expenses. Now, if you're thinking of buying a new electric car, there are so many reasons why that is just a terrible idea right now. So battery technology in cars is moving so fast right now that the car you buy this year in 2018 is going to be completely obsolete next year. In fact, I had this friend tell me um, a couple days ago, there's never a good time to buy a Chevy Volt, and I really could not agree more. Next year, the technology is going to be so much better. The car is going to have like twice the range that it can go and it's going to charge in half the time. So it really just does not make sense to buy a new electric car at this point in time just because the technology is moving so, so quickly. I'm definitely an advocate for electric cars, but just because the technology is moving so fast, if you buy a new one, it's going to be obsolete within a couple of years and that depreciation is going to happen even faster than just buying a new gas guzzling car. Now, when you're buying this car, you really do have to question every single cost the dealership is hitting you with if you're buying it from a dealership. Now, let me just clear up some myths right here right now about buying cars and what is actually required. So gap insurance. A lot of dealerships are going to try to sell you on gap insurance, which is completely not required no matter what they say insurance companies do not require gap insurance and it is completely up to you whether or not you want to be paying for this but if they try to tell you it's necessary that is just completely incorrect and false next it is not required by state law by federal law by anybody's law by insurance to have an alarm system or a security system for your vehicle if the dealership tries to sell you on this it is completely your discretion whether or not you want this security system and it is definitely not required by anybody. Next thing you want to do is you want to have every charge explained to you. If you have to walk through the entire bill step by step by step, then do it. If there is a charge that you do not understand or that you think is not required, you should ask them because chances are it is mostly commission going straight into that car salesman's pocket. There should really be no unclear charges or unclear things that you're paying for. And if you have any questions, I can't stress this enough, ask. Because they make it intentionally confusing so that you don't ask and so that they can just mooch as much money off of you as possible. So you've got to question all of these charges when you buy a car from a dealership. Now, additionally, <laughs> dealerships are going to try to talk you into buying warranty coverage. Now, the thing you have to keep in mind here is that some cars already come with a warranty and they're going to try to make you buy overlapping coverage. So a trick that a lot of car dealerships apply is they give you these options. So they'll give you three options on your warranty coverage. They'll say we've got one plan for $50 a month, one plan for $30 a month, or one plan for $20 a month. Now, you think you're actually saving money when you choose the $20 a month option but the actual choice that you should make is the $0 a month option. If your car is already under warranty from the manufacturer or you just don't want or you don't need this coverage, then ask them for the unlisted $0 a month option where you purchase no extended warranty from them and you just st stick with the manufacturer's warranty. Lastly, when it comes to cars, you really have to take your time with this decision. Most poor decisions at a car dealership and in general are just made when you feel like you're under time pressure. And the minute you step into a car dealership, they are trying to make sure you walk out of there with a brand new vehicle. So a good strategy here is to try to go to multiple different dealerships in different areas. 
because if you stick to the same area, many of the dealerships might actually be owned by the same company and you're just running into the same problems over and over again. One last thing that I would recommend you do is look into a no haggle dealership. So Hertz and CarMax are great locations to buy cars if you're looking for no haggle dealerships and for great deals. So with Hertz, they actually are reselling their cars that they rent out because Hertz is a rental car company. When the rental cars have reached a certain threshold, they're no longer able to use them. So they sell them off for cheap and you can get a great, great deal. So I think buying a car from a rental car company can actually be a great option for you to look into. Now, lastly, just the additional expenses that are associated with having a car at college that you need to keep in mind. I just want to run through these really quick just so that you know all the expenses or at least some of the very significant ones that you're going to have to deal with. Obviously, you're going to have to pay for gas. And this can be even worse when people know that you have a car and they start asking you for rides. Next is insurance. And as a young person, and especially if you're a young male, your insurance premiums are going to be very, very high. Um, Insurance companies know that this age group is one of the most risky, if not the most risky. So your insurance premiums are really going to reflect that. Next, just the registration on your vehicle. That's going to be an expense that you have to keep in mind. And parking. So parking a car on a college campus can be very, very expensive. I know on my campus right now, if I were to have a car and I wanted to park that, it would cost me at least $350 a semester, depending on which parking lot I wanted. If it was a more convenient lot, it would probably be closer to about $500. And I mean, that's just so, so ridiculous in my opinion to be paying that much just to park your car, especially if you don't even use it. I just don't think there is much need for a car in an urban campus. I, I I know on rural campuses, especially if it's a private school, you might get parking for free, which is nice, but it still probably doesn't make sense to have a car on campus. Next, repairs. So cars don't last forever. Things break. Things start to rust, and you're going to have to repair your car throughout your time at school. And then there's also maintenance, so regular oil changes, just making sure your tires are doing all right. And the list really just goes on and on with all the expenses that you're going to have associated with this vehicle. And if you could just use the free transportation system or use your bike or walk, there are just so many better alternatives to having a car on campus. Now, when it comes to school and paying for school, there's really a lot more options than you would think. But the first thing I just want to emphasize is that if you're in school, go to class. It's pretty self-explanatory. But if you're paying to be in a class or you're taking out debt to be in a class and you are not going to that class, then my question for you is what are you paying for? If you're just looking to spend four years of your life taking on six figures of debt so that you can walk across the stage, grab a piece of paper with your name on it, and waltz right into a $50,000 a year job with the potential to increase to six figures. Fantastic. But if that really is your goal, I have another path for you that costs a fraction of the price, takes half as long, and spits you into that same $50,000 a year salary. You know what it is? It's called going to vocational school and becoming a plumber. So tuition from a vocational school or trade school costs on average about a quarter of what a bachelor's degree is going to cost you and takes about half the time and will provide you with real world skills in a trade to get you a job a lot more quickly than maybe a degree in philosophy would. So for example, if you were trained to be a plumber, you could come out of school before your peers have even figured out what they want to major in and lock down a $50,000 a year salary with the potential of growing to $100,000 a year if you become a master plumber, all while taking on one quarter of the debt that you would have from a bachelor's degree, which you'll be able to quickly pay off with that $50,000 a year salary. On the other hand, if you're genuinely interested in the material or you do want to pursue a career that is going to require some additional certification or training, go to class and learn the material. 
there's absolutely nothing wrong with paying for the increased price tag at a four-year school. In fact, it's what I'm doing right now. But there is something wrong with not knowing your options. If you think the only choice coming out of high school is a four-year degree or no degree, that is just simply incorrect. And there are a multitude of options available to you that could end up saving you tens of thousands of dollars in debt throughout your entire life. Now, my second recommendation to you is to test out of classes. But if you already know the material, then don't go to class. Instead, test out of redundant classes. There is absolutely no sense in paying thousands of dollars taking a class that you already took in high school. Many of my peers decide to take classes that they already have just for the easy A. And coming back to the first tip of going to class, if your sole goal of college is to get that piece of paper saying you paid $100,000 and sat through four or more years of classes in the hopes of getting a mediocre job, then great. But if you want to be getting the most bang for your buck while in college and graduate with a host of valuable information and skills to guide you through your life, don't take classes if you're not going to learn anything new. A refresher is always a great way to remind yourself of past information, but you can find so much free information online between YouTube, Khan Academy, and just the multitude of free online learning resources that retaking a class is never a justified option. If you want easy or cheap college credits, then this next tip is exactly what you want to be doing. So if you're in high school, the number one piece of advice that I can give to you is to get as many college credits as possible while you are in high school. So how you can do this is the first thing you can do is take AP classes. So advanced placement classes offer you the ability to sit for an advanced placement test at the end of the school year that can actually grant you some college credit without having to pay thousands of dollars to sit in a college course. But even better is if you can take college classes while in high school. So in Minnesota, there's this program called Post-Secondary Enrollment Options. Acronym for that is PSEO. And what PSEO does is it lets high school students take college courses at a college for completely free. So essentially what you do is you apply to a college as if you were a freshman, and then you take classes as if you were a freshman. And by doing this my junior and senior year of high school, I was able to start school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with junior standing as a freshman. This just gives me so many more opportunities with regards to maybe double majoring, graduating early, study abroad, and just learning through classes that I would not have had room in my schedule for had I come in at ground zero. So if you have the opportunity to get any college credits in high school for less than the cost that you'll be paying in college, I would highly, highly recommend that you jump on that. You're going to learn a ton and you're going to save so much time and money throughout your college career. Now, for the generic stuff in general category, I really have two strategies for you to save money. And these can apply from anything to plane tickets to toasters. And the first of these is to buy everything used. If you are a college student or a person under the age of 28 buying new furniture, new appliances, or even new clothes, you're honestly doing it wrong. Like with cars, any new purchase you make will begin to depreciate the second you buy it. Albeit probably not the 11% value loss that you have in a new car the minute you drive it off the lot. But there is significant depreciation that is going to happen from the moment you purchase something new. And if you can swoop in as soon as somebody else has just taken that hit from depreciation, I figure, why not? Even just waiting a year until the next model of your dream washing machine comes out or the next season to buy the hot new piece of clothing can really end up saving you hundreds of dollars instantly and ensure that when it comes time to sell your items, they have maintained the majority of their value since you were able to buy them on a steep discount. Now, college campuses immediately before summer can be a great, great place to pick up some slightly used mini fridges, microwaves, 
or furniture that an out-of-state college student is looking desperately to ditch before they head home. There are very, very few things that I buy new, and there are very few things that are worth it to buy new as a young person. My personal philosophy is, if it gets the job done, the cheaper the better, and I couldn't care less how new it is or what year's model it came from. Now, the second strategy for you to save money on literally everything is credit cards. And I can talk all day about credit cards, and show number two was all about credit cards and building your credit score. But what I will say is that if you can use a credit card responsibly, not spend more than you would otherwise, and get free money or travel for the things that you already buy, well, then that makes sense in my book. I mean, the key again, though, is don't spend more than you would have with cash or a debit card. Don't carry a balance and don't spend more money than you have. If you can live by those rules, you are going to be golden and credit cards will serve your financial situation very, very well. If not, I would recommend you go check out Dave Ramsey and he will tell you how to cut up your credit cards and avoid debt at all costs. Well, now that we know that making more money is only part of the puzzle and to fully control your finances and grow your wealth, you need to look at where your money is going because more money coming in is great, but if it's flowing out as soon as it comes in, you're running in place and you're going to end up falling in line with the 78% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck and one emergency away from entering a debt cycle. So we cover the impact that saving as little as $5 a day can have over your entire life. And then we dove into some actionable steps that you can take as a young person, both on the small penny pincher scale and the impact that large lifestyle spending like rent and a car can have over the course of our entire lives. So you have the rationale, you have the vision, and you have some steps to take. The rest comes down to action, and like it or not, that is in your hands. All right, and for our money pun of the day, to save money for our company, my boss cut the electricity, but on the bright side, we were soon in the black. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be looking at the impact and importance of starting to invest at a young age, but if you can't wait until then for your next hit of financial literacy content and money skills, you are in luck. I have got a load of free resources for you. The first of which is my website, applecrater.com, where you will find the show notes for this episode at applecrater.com slash 004. Additionally, I have a new course called $100 and a Smartphone, which is a free online video lecture course that guides college students step-by-step -step through investing their first $100 with their smartphones. And lastly, you can check out my YouTube channel, Apple Crater, where I have over 150 daily uploads on financial literacy skills, such as mastering credit cards, investing, budgeting, and so much more. Well, guys, thank you for checking out Young Smart Money with me, your host, Apple Crater. And before I go, I would like to challenge you to find a way to save $100. Maybe that sounds really easy to you, and if so, feel free to up the challenge to $200. But for some people, finding an additional $100 may seem like a daunting task. Either way, I know you are able to accomplish this if you take it one step at a time. When it comes to saving money, it really is all about those small victories and how they're able to add up over time. One strategy for you that may make this challenge feel a little less intimidating is to one, grab a shoebox, and two, every time you find yourself with a $1 bill, or if you're feeling super ambitious, you could do a $1 bill or a $5 bill, put those bills into this box. At the end of the month, open up the box and take a look at all the money you have saved. Be sure to deposit the money into either a high yield savings account or invest it to see the greatest impact. But I know there's going to be some people out there who are going to say, that's all well and good, but I don't use cash. How am I supposed to do this? Well, lucky for you, there are some really nice apps that do exactly this, but on a digital level. So the two that I have personally used 
are capital, spelled Q-A-P-I-T-A-L, and Acorns. Now with both of these apps, you can set rules to round up your purchases to either the nearest dollar or five dollars and either deposit or invest that money without you even having to think about it. And don't forget to let me know which strategies for saving are the most effective for you. Anyways guys, do not forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. I would really appreciate it. It really does help out new podcasts and I would love to hear your feedback. It would be so, so valuable and I will be highlighting reviews and feedback that I do receive in the next episode. For Young Smart Money, my name is Apple Kreider. I'll see you next week.